Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender diverse people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on unceded Kulin Nations land and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. On today's show, I'm joined by Catherine Gledhill-Tucker and Samantha Floriani to tackle some big questions about digital rights, predatory tech companies, and regulation. Kat is a Noongar technologist and digital rights activist who serves on the board of Electronic Frontiers Australia. Their work explores the intersection of activism, science fiction, and technology in imagining radical futures and ushering them into existence. Sam is a digital rights activist and writer living on unceded Wurundjeri land. They also live on the internet and strive to make it a better place through their privacy advocacy and tech policy work as program lead for Digital Rights Watch. This is a massive conversation, so without further ado, I think we should jump right into it. So I guess to kick us off, how did you both come to the work that you do in the digital rights and tech space, and why is this work so important to you? Kat, I might go to you first. (laughs) Well, this is my shameful secret, is my postgrad was in marketing. Um, So I came to digital rights via working in marketing analytics for a few years and just seeing how how able we are to track people and make decisions about people and use analytics that seem to be quite benign from a tech perspective and a business perspective, but actually start encroaching on people's human rights very, very quickly. (laughs) So I found digital rights just via figuring out how to protect myself from the kind of work that I was doing at the time. And then rapidly moved away from marketing analytics as soon as I could. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Sam, what about you? Going through uni, I I really wanted to get into like international diplomacy. And I was fascinated at the time about the five eyes and intelligence sharing and, and the sort of like international impacts of that. And then very quickly, once I started looking into that, I was like, oh, this is actually really cooked and the power imbalances here are immense. It was around the same time that metadata retention was happening, so around 2015, and I was like, hang on, this is all starting to come together in my brain about surveillance and privacy and data collection, and it just, it was all downhill from there, really, for me. Um, And then I went and studied data science because I was like, okay, artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, these are really like interesting areas and have really big impacts on how people are able to access services and how they interact with technology. I'm curious about how that works under the hood. And as I started to learn more about the technical side of things, I became more and more, I guess, enamored by the societal implications of that and how digital rights can play a really fundamental role in um, protecting us as individuals, but also as communities. And I think that something that like always keeps me hooked in to digital rights in particular is that it's so fundamental to all kinds of other movements. Like the way that we are able to connect and communicate and organize is directly impacted by decisions made by governments and tech companies about tech policy. And so standing up for digital rights is super intersectional to me, it, it, like how I consider it at least, you know, even if we think about things like environmental activists are some of the most heavily surveilled, and so digital rights impacts that. Reproductive justice is, is something that's in the news at the moment, sadly, 
And there are sort of ways that digital rights interacts with that as well in terms of how people are tracked and penalised when seeking out vital healthcare, like abortion. Or like workers' rights, you know, the relationship between employers and employees has so much automation getting built into it at this point and that the impact of surveillance on workers is also a digital rights issue. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that for me, fighting for digital rights is about so much more than just like an abstract notion of data and the internet. It's I really like try to ground it in how it impacts other social movements and causes as well. Sorry, I'll jump in just to build on what Sam was saying. I agree. I think tech policy and digital rights isn't a discrete field of activism, although it might be really easy to talk about it in that way or report on it in that way, because digital rights is really a vector of human rights and the kind of challenges and the dangers that we see are manifestations of capitalism and colonialism and white supremacy just in like new fun interesting ways and through new fun tech ways and they amplify existing injustices that we see in in other areas of our society and in our communities. Yeah, absolutely. And both of your work really speaks to the fact that digital rights is really inseparable from a broader understanding of human rights as well and the fulfillment of our you know, human rights in the most capacious sense must include an analysis and an intersectional analysis of the way that we engage in digital spaces. So philosopher Shoshana Zuboff has coined the term surveillance capitalism, which, as I understand it, is an economic logic oriented towards this voracious collection and commodification of personal data for profit. And it's characterized by a lack of accountability and leads to this fundamentally anti-democratic operation of digital spaces, which rely on this epistemic inequality between users and tech corporations. So I'm wondering if you could both speak to the significance of framing our present context as one of surveillance capitalism when approaching digital rights work. And maybe it might be worth linking in the example of we recently saw major Australian retailers such as Bunnings being caught using facial surveillance technologies in their stores. Sam, I might go to you first on this and then Kat. I think that the framing of surveillance capitalism is really useful for a number of reasons, one of which is that it reminds us of its link to capitalism. Um, I think before that sort of entered the popular vernacular, I think it was pretty easy to keep surveillance and capitalism kind of separate in our minds. But I think what Shoshana Zuboff has done really well is to link them and to make it really clear that surveillance in the sense of pervasive data collection that are happening on on digital platforms, for example, is motivated by a capitalist ideology. And so we can't fight surveillance capitalism without also fighting capitalism and the harms caused by capitalism, which I think is really useful, but it's also kind of daunting for a lot of people, right? Because... (laughs) I think that often we, at least I can certainly speak for myself, but I I imagine a lot of us slip into this idea of like capitalist realism, where it's really hard to imagine a different way of things functioning. And so it becomes very sort of nihilistic and kind of self-defeatist because it's really hard to even consider a different structure. It is nice to see, though, that there is more and more people starting to really challenge these ideas and come up with, or at least flirt with different models, but it's a huge task. The other thing that I think comes out of this is something that I really admire with Shoshana Zuboff's work is that she really emphasizes that 
this sense of inevitability, like technological inevitability, that it has to be this way, that, you know, that you have to hand over your data or relinquish your privacy in order to enjoy technological progress is manufactured. And by buying into that, it's self-serving to the companies who operate under a paradigm of surveillance capitalism because it serves their agenda. Mm. Yeah, Kat? Yes, plus one to all of that. And so we talk about surveillance capitalism as this voracious capturing and mining and collecting of data. I think Shoshana Zuboff also uses the term trading in behavioral futures. So it's not just about collecting data for profit. It's also very explicitly trying to influence future behavior and future purchasing behavior very specifically. So it, it is a really useful thing to keep in mind because we have a familiarity with capitalism and it is important to remember that these big tech companies like Google or Meta or Amazon are building technology to turn a profit, even if the things that they're selling us are framed or marketed as you know something for you know individual or personal good. And yeah, this idea that technological innovation is always good and that we shouldn't get in the way of it is a really pervasive narrative. And there's a real like anti-legislation sentiment coming from these companies because it's like, don't get in the way of us making money, but it's turned into this, this sentiment of like, oh, tech innovation is always good. Like the future is full of all these wonderful things and make no mention of the very real harms that are occurring today and could be amplified in the future. And then I one risk that I'm really concerned about is this normalization of surveillance as well when we're talking about surveillance capitalism. So I really reject the narrative that because these big tech companies like Google, Meta, Amazon already have access to so much of our data that it is somehow like hypocritical to care about privacy in, in public or in private spaces. I think that's a really dangerous narrative. And we've seen that come up with Bunnings as well. In a few articles that have come out recently, some really dangerous suggestions that, oh, we already give away. And again, the phrase give away, like we somehow had an active participation in the way that these companies are mining us and our data, that because we already are being mined and these companies already know so much about us that we should feel like, oh, what's the point? What's the point in trying to fight back or, yeah, again, like care about privacy in, in these spaces is extremely dangerous. Yeah, it, it's governed by this overarching rationale that, you know, competition and technological innovation is going to lead to the development of better products. But really, it's just about developing uh, more options for profit maximization. You're listening to Women on the Line on your local community radio station with me, Priya. I've been speaking with Sam Floriani from Digital Rights Watch and Kat Gledhill-Tucker from Electronic Frontiers Australia about surveillance capitalism, digital rights, privacy and regulation. Let's head back into that conversation now. 
The notion of privacy is quite interesting in terms of the digital space because we've seen these conversations around, you know, online safety and the online safety bill in Australia. And privacy is generally framed in terms of this uh, protective kind of mechanism, usually framed around young people. But I'm also wondering who gets to exercise this right in digital spaces, given that regulation is so far behind technological development and how this intersects with concerns of things like race, colonialism, gender and sexuality, and especially when it comes to questions of anonymity and navigating power dynamics online. Kat, I might go to you first. Yeah, I think that's a very big question. And maybe there's a slight nuance between like, who should get to exercise those rights in digital spaces and what does our legislation currently allow us to do and support us to do because you know we live in a country that doesn't have a federally enforceable right to privacy and that's one of the biggest issues that we deal with every day in in our roles as tech policy advocates but if we think about like who who should be able to exercise the right to privacy i say anyone who is uh, participating in in digital spaces and online spaces. And you touched a little bit on colonisation and digital colonisation. So I'd say that one thing that I use to frame my work and frame my thinking is this idea of having very clear protocols around who has access to what information and this idea of Indigenous data sovereignty. So I think it's very important that I infuse the tech that I build with this idea that any data about me belongs to me and that should be respected for any other person, which is totally antithetical to the way that surveillance capitalism works. Like I think Amazon or Google or Facebook or Meta will think, okay, I've collected this data, that's mine now. (laughs) That no longer belongs to the individual or the community or the organisation. Yeah, I might might pass them to Sam. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So I am a huge privacy advocate. Like it's my main jam, right? And I really do believe in it as a collective good and as a really essential ingredient to like social movements and to democracy and democratic processes, which I kind of alluded to before. And, you know, speaking about surveillance capitalism earlier, like if we can agree that surveillance and surveillance capitalism is causing immense harm, especially when it comes to exacerbating existing inequalities, then to me, protecting privacy is one of the key ways that we can interrogate those structures and then we can push back on them. That said, I really grapple with challenges around privacy being a privilege because, you know, privacy advocates, myself included, will regularly emphasize that privacy is about power and it is. But what I think is often left out of that conversation is that those who lack power are so often expected to readily, willingly, and almost gratefully give up their privacy in order to access the most basic services or support or to be able to navigate you know, a digital world while those in power often have this expectation of privacy and kind of take it as a given. And they develop systems in which their privacy is is more readily protected. So, for example, survivors are expected to retell their stories in excruciating detail over and over again in the pursuit of justice and the hope of being heard. Welfare recipients are expected to hand over immense amounts of their personal information. They get very little choice in any of that just in order to be able to access support and services. Renters, another example, expected to hand over huge amounts of information in this like very obvious power imbalance dynamic between renters and, and landlords. 
there's this quote that I read a couple of years ago that really stuck with me as well from scholar and abolitionist Mariam Carber. And she said that, you know, black people have always been under the gaze of the state and we know that our rights are routinely violated. And what she highlights in this essay is that there's this real disparity in the way that we talk about privacy and civil uh, liberties along racial lines as well. I think white people, myself included in that, often take for granted that we should have an expectation of privacy when plenty of other people of different racial backgrounds have not had that luxury to think of it in those terms before. The way that you frame it there really makes me want to throw to Kat to, to ask about these questions of digital colonialism and the, the colonization of digital spaces, because I think about scholars, you know, like Maggie Walter and her work on Indigenous data collection, on Indigenous data, and, you know, the way that obviously the questions that we ask in order to collect data and, and in the digital space, it's about, you know, programs that we're writing, about algorithms that are being created. Obviously, they rely on fundamental human biases and power imbalances in the world. And I'm wondering, Kat, if you can speak to the sort of relationship between settler colonialism and the question of digital ethics. I will first like touch on this idea of power imbalances because I think that's really important. And we often, uh, when we're working in this tech policy space and we're negotiating or speaking on legislation, we're often told like, oh, you know, politicians don't really, they're not really technical or they don't really, they're not experts in this space. So we just, if we could just teach them enough about technology, then they'd, they'd understand but they don't need to be tech experts. They know about power. They know how power is wielded and they know how power affects marginalised communities. I don't think we need to presume naivety there or that presume that all they need is just like a Tech 101 course and then they'll be on our side. I think we need to give them a, a lot more credit than that. But, yes, let's talk about settler colonialism and surveillance capitalism for a couple of minutes. I'd start with... Again, just coming back to this idea of like voracious data capture and data handling, I think the idea that all information can and should be accessible to every person is a very Western point of view as well and a very capitalist point of view. So when I talk about having very clear protocols around who has access to what information that comes from a very uh, Indigenous way of thinking and way of knowing, I don't have access to all of the culture and knowledge and understanding in not just in my community, in other Indigenous communities as well, because that information is so carefully shared. And that is the kind of mentality that I want to embed into technology as well. And data governance that might look like your roles-based permissions and privacy by default cultures and anything we build for marginalised communities must not be just informed by those communities, but truly led and governed by them as well. There's also this real risk of white saviorism in tech solutionism. I think there is a real tendency for technologists to see injustices in the world or see marginalised communities suffering in some way and think, oh, there's an app for that. I can, I can come in there and fix it using the tools and the knowledge that I have. But it has a real, like missionary 
um, kind of colonialist mindset behind it. I really warn against. Um, I also want to call out like a really specific example of this digital colonialism and thinking about like Meta or Facebook's like free basics program where they basically like own access to the internet and to digital services in areas of the global south by really owning and determining how individuals access the internet by providing all the hardware and, and software and network and owning that entire digital ecosystem. Google does it in similar ways as well, but it's widely marketed in a way that they feel very proud in saying, look, we're providing these basic services to people who really need it. But when you're an individual and your only access to the world and the digital world is via a capitalist organization, that's another vector of imperial harm. Yeah, definitely. Maybe I'll turn to the question of regulation, because I think regulation is such an important feature here. And we spoke before about the way that surveillance capitalism is really anti-regulation. But I'm wondering if we can think about both the domestic level of regulation and what are some of the global governance systems and you know possibilities at an international level? This is a really challenging issue, right? So over the past few years under the coalition government, there was this real sense of them wanting to leverage being seen to be tough on big tech to win political points. Like big tech is a pretty unpopular entity. And so to be seen to be like standing up for Australians in the face of big, bad, big tech was like quite politically popular. The trouble is, is that their approaches to it, as you kind of alluded to before, were ways that really not only did not meaningfully address the underlying business models and structures that are causing such immense harm, but also in many ways, created other issues, like opened all kinds of other cans of worms up. So, you know, thinking about the news media bargaining code, for example, has had a really weird impact on journalism and media online. Thinking about online safety, that was a really big one um, over the past few years, you know, really under this narrative of, you know, we're protecting like women and children in particular online and standing up to big tech. But in the, you know, in the process of doing that, undermining privacy, threatening encryption, moving towards systems of age verification, which bring with it all kinds of privacy and security risks. And this is just kind of, they're just two examples of many where we just see, you know, these, yeah, attempting to win political points, but not really doing any much meaningful, while at the same time, also, they were bolstering their own surveillance capacities to leverage digital technologies for their own, you know, agenda of law enforcement and intelligence gathering. So it's been a really hectic couple of years domestically. But even if we get to the point where we have, you know, hopefully, our new government might make some positive steps to either, you know, maybe repeal some of the more awful legislation or or if not, at least, you know, update the Privacy Act, complete the Privacy Act review, maybe develop some new regulation. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But even if we get to that point, you're right to call out that there's an international element to this. We are part of a global internet economy as well. And so we are directly impacted by the other laws of other countries that get passed as well. And the thing that I'm thinking of right now is FOSTA in the US 
which essentially incentivized tech companies to proactively take down sexual content. And that, while it's a US-based law, because these companies are international and they have to meet the standards around the world, that directly impacts how we then use those services, use social media, for example. Uh, you know, People uh, end up with having to deal with the sort of very harsh content moderation that is dictated by other countries, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's what we've seen. There's definitely been that trend of because of these companies are global, their policies on their platforms aren't localized. So they have to kind of treat the lowest common denominator of legislation and compliance as the global standard on these platforms. And it does tend to mean restriction of sexual content or sexualized content or like any content that might upset a white Christian person is essentially what ends up happening on on these platforms when it comes to yeah regulation or content moderation and it is really harmful and it does disproportionately and very quickly end up impacting people's livelihoods and specifically thinking about sex workers who rely on these platforms to conduct their business and just people to access real education and sexual health education or even just to, you know, queer people finding voices that help them feel less alone. Like these are the people who end up being the, the canaries in the coal mine, which is an awful analogy, but those are the people who are impacted first and the harshest uh, and we see that happen again and again I um there's this really I I think it, maybe it was yesterday or the day before we saw in the news meta as uh, starting to roll out age verification using facial analysis on Instagram which I think is this like really perfect example of policy that is marketed as protecting children that is in a very real way harming our right to privacy <laughs> uh, and we're just going to keep seeing more and more of that which in turn undermines the safety of children which yeah. is the <laughs> mind-boggling part of it. <laughs> it it there's no sense in any of it but a lot of the yeah a lot of the policy conversation and legislation conversation in our country and in other countries tends to be dominated by this like children's safety narrative but there's no logic to any of it uh, from from my point of view. It, it's so ridiculous, especially when we see reporting about things like the massive amount of data harvesting from video conferencing apps that children were using to access school remotely, and then the use of that data to provide targeted advertising, for example. And, you know, if that is not considered on a continuum with notional protection of children through online safety regulations, then it seems like, yeah, it seems uh, extremely ideological. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, precisely. Because I was also, yeah, wondering if maybe both of you could speak to questions around digital spaces and the sort of push-pull factors around queer liberation and constraint and these sort of Puritan politics that are being applied to uh, queer people's navigation of online spaces. So I think content moderation and governance is a really key example of this. This is something that comes up 
again and again when we talk about online safety or at least the current sort of narrative of online safety. And so content moderation by its very nature is something that seeks to apply blanket standards across a huge range of people. And it is something that is political. It is something that's based in ideological ideas of morality, decency, and upholding the status quo. And I think what this ends up meaning is that it essentially acts as a systematic sanitization of queerness and really an expulsion of queerness from like the digital imaginary because queerness by its very nature is is not going to conform to the norm. So last year, Digital Rights Watch hosted this panel um, and it was kind of all about this. And one of the speakers was Joshua Badge. And they said something that really struck me and has stayed with me and like lingered in my mind since then. They said that attempts to moderate queer art, expression and culture is a kind of sinister de-queering of queerness. And I think that that is such a spot on reflection of how this not just in online spaces, but I think because of the nature of online spaces, it's at such a grand scale that the impacts and the flow and effects of trying to moderate content upon queer people in particular have very real flow and effects into the the physical world, you know, into meat space. And I think it presents this really fundamental challenging idea in that these spaces by design force assimilation into dominant norms and culture. Uh, You know, we shouldn't have to change ourselves to fit into whatever Instagram thinks the community standards are. You know, we have our own norms and culture and practices, and yet we are kind of forced to. And it also means that, you know, not just through content moderation, but also through things like amplification algorithms and engagement algorithms, We are essentially, I mean, not everybody, I'm sure some people are very good at resisting this, but in a general sense, we're essentially being trained to converge to the middle, to to the average, um, you know, through this process of like self-optimization for air quotes, success online, which usually means like likes and shares and comments. And I find it fascinating how that, yeah, it kind of pushes us all towards this middle point rather than what was kind of promised on the on the internet of, of it being like this huge diversity of voices and everyone can have a space and whatever. And to be clear, I think that also exists. I'm talking specifically more of the, the mainstream, like dominant social media platforms. But in terms of the impact on, on queerness, I think that that's really kind of fascinating. But, and I'll wrap this up really shortly because I know that I'm going on a bit of a rant, but of the same token, Online spaces play a huge role in a lot of queer people's lives to be able to find community, to be able to access um, vital health information, to be able to explore their identities, to be able to, you know, meet like-minded people and, and, and whatnot. And that's really, really important when we're talking about online safety to protect that and to uphold that. I'm deeply concerned that the current political vision for online safety in Australia, but also internationally, does come back to these ideas of content moderation and, you know, very surveillance-based punitive approaches to um, what is considered to be safety. You know, the problem is that these things actually, you know, end up undermining our collective and individual safety, specifically for for groups who are already marginalised. I'll build a bit on what Sam said uh, and say I, I don't think we can neatly separate 
you know, online spaces and digital spaces from other, you know, real, real world spaces anymore. I think if platforms are designed in a way to restrict access or really deny access for people from queer backgrounds or other, you know, non like heteronormative backgrounds, you're really denying people access to society and uh, access to these really vital spaces and creating harm in very real ways that aren't just about uh, denying you know, access to, to a digital community. And, oh, yeah, that that quote from Joshua Badge actually really stuck with me as well. I remember that event that you held a little, a little while ago. I think that's... Uh, such a poignant point. And um, Sam and myself and a couple of other friends contributed to a piece in Junkie a little while ago too. And I reflected a lot on the very similar shared experiences a lot of us had growing up in perhaps like, uh, you know, small towns or families that weren't ready to be supportive of our queer selves or our queer identities or we were in spaces where we weren't able to explore those identities at a young age and digital spaces and digital platforms really gave us those opportunities and that was such a vital part of our experiences as human beings and they those experiences need to be protected. I also think it's just so bold of these platforms to deny the value that queer people bring to those spaces and the kind of like content and culture that comes from queerness and people of colour and other marginalised identities. Like that's where culture comes from and we really need to pay credit to that. I, I mean, think about you know what happened to Tumblr post the demonification of female presenting nipples like it died <laughs> uh, and the same thing I'm sure will happen to other platforms if they crack down too hard and go down too hard this like path of content moderation and really like puritanical ideologies you're going to sanitize to the point that culture is dead <laughs> that is a beautiful way to put it and it is this really fine line that tech companies appear to be trying to walk where they are simultaneously mining culture from communities, you know, especially black communities to gain clicks and views, but at the same time, you know, reporting and moderating away black lives from the internet and like particularly black queer lives. And it's just, yeah, it just seems so self-defeating when we're analyzing it in this space. But so predatory at the same time. And I think that's why um, this, this really, it really comes back to the importance of considering digital rights within this broader framework of human rights rather than abstracting it away uh, to be, you know, considered separately. Um, so thank you both so much for this discussion. The work that both of you do is incredibly important. And I think also done in a way that is really accessible. Like sometimes, you know, these conversations around digital rights can be quite obscure or difficult to parse. And also this this idea that it's inevitable that we are giving away our rights sometimes, you know, skews the way we interpret this anyway. But I think the work that you both do is so vital in this space. So thank you very much for making the time to talk with me. Thank, thank you, you so much. That's all we have time for today on Women on the Line. In today's show, I was joined by Catherine Gledhill-Tucker, 
Nungar technologist, writer, and digital rights activist, and board member of Electronic Frontiers Australia, and Samantha Floriani, program lead at Digital Rights Watch, who works at the intersection of human rights, technology, and feminism. Women on the Line is produced and presented by women and gender-diverse people in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on unceded Kulin Nations land. Women on the Line is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network, and this is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara, and our past programs can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Priya Kunjan, and tune into Women on the Line next week on your local community radio station. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.